Morning, everyone. Happy Sunday. Happy summer? I'm not sure. The weather's confusing me, so. December 3rd, the warmest day of the year. Uh, we are starting in on the Christmas series. As uh, was mentioned last week, we are calling it Epic, a look at salva- uh, Christmas and salvation history. So that starts us in Genesis 3, and uh, at the end of December, we'll be in Revelation. So gonna, the sermons are going to be five times as long as normal, so we can just cover the entire Bible. No, we're, we're not going to be here until 3 p.m. Um, it'll only be 2 p.m. So today, we get the privilege of kicking this off, looking at Genesis, and I want you to think of when did you last feel dirty? Not because you were rolling in the mud, but like soul dirty. No shower in the world could remove this dirty. The impact of shame, the impact of feeling wrong, that goes far deeper than I goofed. We get the opportunity to look at this story today And I want you not to recite in your brain all the facts you already know of what happens in Genesis 3. And I want you instead to pretend like you're hearing it for the first time. Maybe you need to think of yourself as a three or four or five-year-old or something. Enter this story because story aims to teach by drawing us in and by us feeling what's going on. And so as as we look at this very familiar account of what happened at the beginning of history. Let's, let's feel this together. Let's hear it together and be changed uh, by God's spirit at work in our lives. Father, as we, as we look over this section of Genesis, we pray that you would be with us to teach and instruct and change us into your image. We pray, Spirit, that you would be active in our hearts, that you would make this new and living as you do. As Hebrews tells us, you use your word in an active and living way. Thank you that you are there to intervene between our hard hearts and the, and the beautiful truths that are in Scripture and to change us. So we trust in you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So Adam and Eve... They were living in this beautiful garden. And who knows how long it had been, but there are trees everywhere, there are flowers everywhere. This is the beginning of creation, right? There's lush grass, there's a beautiful view, many beautiful views everywhere you turn. Trees abundant, vegetables abundant, animals here and there. Animals with new names that Adam has recently given them. And they walk together hand in hand and they enjoy the area. They see the beauty of God's creation. They make new names for new things. They walk around. They see new sights that they hadn't noticed yet. Maybe they see the intricacies of of the veins of the leaves because they hadn't paid attention to that in the past few days. They smell the flowers. They see the bees going from flower to flower and pollinating them. They enjoy the garden. This is bliss. Temperatures are right, always. And whether you're cold-blooded or warm-blooded, somehow it was the right match. Everything's flourishing. They have this mandate to cultivate it all and make it better. They have all they could need in terms of food and provision and everything. This is bliss. And now one day they're walking along. They are walking along. Because chapter 3, verse 6 tells us Adam was with her. They were walking along through the garden and they had an unexpected conversation with one of the animals. Now, Eve doesn't seem too phased by this. Was this a Dr. Doolittle thing where they commonly spoke with some of the animals or was this very unique circumstance? Either way, she's like, oh, hey, what's up? Yeah. And the serpent is talking now. The serpent who is crafty, the serpent who wants to challenge God's words. You see, scene one is sin and shame. 
In scene one, we, we see Eve and Adam walking along, and we see Eve talking to a serpent and being tricked. Tricked with visions and of grandeur and wisdom and such that she had not perceived that this forbidden tree might have. So they walk along, they talk with a snake. Snake says, eat, and she's like, oh, sure, this seems like a good idea. We've all been there. We've all been there many times. This seems like a good idea. You're growing up and your parents said, don't touch that thing. But your older sibling said, no, no, this would be cool. Or your teacher said, don't do whatever, but you're your best friend slash not really your friend but you didn't realize it or whoever it happened to be at school said, no, this would be a great idea, let's do this. And you were tricked. You were led to believe this was a good idea. And so you go for it. But here's the thing, Adam and Eve, they'd never tried this before. This thing where you go against the word you're told. This thing where you're said, don't eat from this tree and you're tricked into doing it instead. That dirty feeling, that I did wrong feeling, this is foreign right now. As of verse 4 and 5, that feeling's never occurred. Adam and Eve walking in bliss in the garden, totally good, totally fine, safe, happy. Then they eat. They eat of this fruit, whatever it is, People have pictured it as an apple. doesn't necessarily make sense given the Mideastern agriculture. We're not told what it actually is. Was it a pomegranate? Was it an artichoke? Artichoke's not fruit probably, but you know. Some food, a fig, who cares? Maybe it's some fruit we've never seen because after all, God closed off access to that garden thousands of years ago. The point is, that eating, that fruit was rebellion. They're, they're trying this new idea. They're following the word of the serpent. And all of a sudden, as of biting, things change. A new dirty feeling. Somehow this bliss, they're standing in the exact same place they just were 10 seconds ago. And yet it doesn't feel the same. This garden no longer feels like paradise. This partner in life no longer feels safe. Adam and Eve, verse 7. The eyes of both were open. They knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Adam and Eve have been naked this entire time, and there's nothing wrong with it. Verse 25, they were naked. They were not ashamed. So verse 7, they were, knew they were naked. That doesn't say, oh, they knew they were sinful and doing this horrible thing their whole life. It's not like they were going around every day and just insulting people and, and doing horrible things and just didn't realize it. Oh, then their eyes were open. They realized they'd been a jerk for years and they felt horrible about it. There's something different going on here. They're, they're feeling vulnerable. They're feeling dirty. They're feeling embarrassed. They're, they're t seeing each other. They're not even interacting with God yet. God whom they rebelled against. God whose word they disobeyed. The parent hasn't walked into the room. And yet, with this action, they're like, what's going on? There's a distance. There's a covering it's like you're, you're walking along totally happy on a date or something, walking down a trail, Paris Mountain maybe, going on a hike. And all of a sudden, six guys jump out, all pointing guns at you. Now how vulnerable do you feel? It was good just a second ago. We're looking at the leaves, seeing the slugs and the snails and watching birds, and now there's six guys with guns, and I don't, all I have is a pocket knife. It's very vulnerable. What was safe and happy now feels like not enough. And so they make fig leaf loincloths to try to, try to cover this, this embarrassment they feel. And we look at this and we realize as they are interacting with each other now in a place of distance. Again, not with God yet. This isn't necessarily a proper response. Do they have guilt? They have guilt. They've done wrong. But now they're trying to cover their entire being. They're trying to hide. They're trying to get away. 
One commentator said, Adam and Eve's shame seems almost certainly to be a case of embarrassment at having been exposed, both in their persons and in their actions. As such, their response of making clothing springs from a sense of self-consciousness, vulnerability, and insecurity. Such embarrassment is not necessarily commendable. But sin brought a brokenness. Sin brought a new feeling. And now there was a need to try to find a way to get out of this scenario where they had a knife at a gunfight. Where, where what was enough was no longer enough. Where the purity of bliss was, was suddenly didn't feel safe. So now what? Scene one ends and we're, we're left sitting there, Adam and Eve with loincloths, hoping somehow to get away from what they've just done. This, oh no, what have I done moment. When you decide to play baseball in the backyard, even though dad said not to, and then suddenly the ball goes through the kitchen window and lodges itself in the fridge. Oh no, what have I done? Things were good. Now, now they're not. But scene two, God enters. And here we go. What happens when the parent enters the room? Kids, what happens when the parent enters the room and you've done wrong? Ah, <laughs> she did it, I didn't, okay, blame. What else, is, what else happens when the parent enters the room and you've done wrong? You get in trouble. God's walking around and they're like, oh shoot, and they go hide behind some tree because it turns out even their loincloths weren't enough to help them actually feel safe from this shame, dirtiness that they were feeling. They're still rotten or something. And they can't be around this God anymore. They don't want to be. They're, they're running. They're hiding. They had never yet read in the Psalms, because it wasn't written yet, where it says, where can I flee from your presence? You're everywhere. They're going to hide. They're going to cover. They're going to somehow deal with this dirtiness, somehow deal with this difference, this new feeling of breakage. God knows. Hey, where are you? Hey, guys, where'd you go? God's not looking for information. God knows exactly where they are. But he's calling them out. He's calling them out into the light, calling them out into honesty because here's the thing. God knows that confession frees from shame. God knows what, God, God is not surprised by what researcher Brene Brown has found, that shame is highly correlated with addiction, depression, violence, aggression, bullying, suicide, and eating disorders. There's what shame gets you. By contrast, that guilt is inversely correlated. The more you encounter and deal with your guilt, the less you have addiction, depression, violence, aggression, bullying, suicide, eating disorders. God knows what Adam and Eve didn't realize, that what they needed to do was affirm their guilt to kill their shame. Where are you? We were afraid. We, we were, I'm naked. I hid myself. Naked? Who told you you're naked? Again, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Verse 25. There was nothing wrong with this. And yet they're claiming there's something wrong now. I was naked. I hid myself. I only had a knife and you had a gun and I'm running. Because that's all I know to do is, is run away. I don't feel adequate for this circumstance. I feel too dirty. I feel like I shouldn't be here. Something wrong with me. What have you done? Oh, the woman, the woman gave me the fruit. Oh, the serpent, he tricked me. Okay. Now we know what's happened. Now we've stated the reality. We're not hiding and running from the shame anymore, are we? God has called them out to the truth. In scene two, they're called into the light called to a place of honesty. There's, there's no stuffing it. There's no pretending it didn't happen. There's no wallowing in this dirtiness because I can't seem to find a way to get clean of it. You haven't released yourself of it yet, Adam and Eve. 
you haven't even told someone that what you did and that it was wrong, and now you're trying to hide it from God too. But God's not content with that. He's not content to leave them wallowing in their shame. He calls them to affirm their guilt. He calls them to recognize that what they did is not who they are. Where are you? I hid. Who told you you were naked? Well, what did you do? She did it. She gave me the thing. Oh, he tricked me. On the one hand, they're passing blame. On the other hand, what they're saying is true. <laughs> what happened? Well, she gave me the thing and I ate it. That's, that's what happened. What happened with you? Well, the, the serpent tricked me and I ate it. That, that also happened. Does she need to own the fact that she was tricked? Yeah. Does Adam need to own the fact that he still ate it? Yeah. Does he maybe need to own the fact he didn't say a thing to the serpent when the serpent's tricking Eve? Yeah, probably. But those are still the facts of the case. They're still affirming what happened. They're still honestly declaring to God, yeah, I screwed up. I screwed up. And now, God, I feel this dirtiness and this shame, and I've got to hide from you because I can't be with you, God, anymore. Because I, I'm, I'm rotten or something. I'm so dirty, and all the rain you can send, I'm not going to wash this away. Guilt allows you to learn from your circumstances. Shame doesn't. Shame keeps you there. The more you hold to the shame, the more you're hidden, the more you're reserved, the more you're not vulnerable with people, the more that you're locked away in a corner in your shame, telling yourself how bad you are, being told by the serpent how bad you are, and rehearsing over and over again how bad you are and how broken you are and how you can't be free and you're worthless because you did this thing. Shame loves keeping us hiding and stuck. Shame is fueled by hiding and being stuck. So God's like, all right, well, there's what you did. <laughs> Scene three, consequences. This is what happens, right, kids? Parents catch you doing something, or they say, who did this? And you own up to it, and there's consequences. What did you do? Well, I broke the window playing baseball in the backyard. Were you supposed to do that? No. Okay, we got to fix that window somehow, and you got a lot of money that you were just given for your birthday. We're going to have to take some of that money out to help fix this window. Oh, man. Right? There's consequences. But these consequences are full of mercy at the same time. And we can't miss this fact. The Lord said to the serpent, cursed are you. And that word curse doesn't come up again until verse 17 when he's talking to the man and he said, cursed is the ground. Now, who sinned? The man, the woman. Who sinned? Well, Satan through the serpent. But the serpent is cursed and the ground is cursed and the man and woman are not directly cursed. The man and the woman experience the effects of the curse. The man and the woman are going to feel pain. They're going to, like childbearing is going to hurt now and working is going to be hard now and all of this. But God does not directly curse them. He doesn't say, now you're doomed to eternal hell. This whole experiment's done. You guys have no hope, forget you. But look closely at what God says to the serpent because this is critical to understanding why we're even in this text when we're talking about Christmas through salvation history. Verse 14, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Verse 15, I will put enmity. That means eneminess. Right? Enmity. The two of you are not friends. Enmity where? I'll put enmity be between myself and you guys because you sinned. I'll put enmity between all the angels in heaven and, and those on the people on earth. No. I'll put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman. Between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Bruise or crush. The word is translated differently by different people. But he, the seed of the woman, is going to have his foot on your head, serpent, and you're only going to get his heel. Do you see here God's mercy-filled consequence? Here are these consequences that bring pain and, and suffering, and yet God says in the midst of this, 
humans whom I have made, I am going to make you enemies of sin. Do you realize where we could have been if God didn't do that? If we were friends of sin, if we were as wicked as we could be, if Adam and Eve were as sinful as they could be and their their offspring as sinful as they could be, we made a mess of things even with just sin being around. If we were friends of sin, but no, God said from the beginning he was stepping into this and he was placing a feeling of, of enmity that even though I'm trapped in this sin thing, I'm also an enemy of it. And I stand off from it even as I fall to it. And we see it even now. We look in our culture. We can bemoan many downturns of moral society. And yet at the same time, there is so much that is good, that is given common grace, that we are not nearly as wicked as we could be. <laughs> People still care for each other. People still have some standards of behavior, even in places that are godless, even in places that don't have Judeo-Christian values for a couple hundred years or anything like that. There are still standards that happen because God has placed a status of enemies between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. He's so kind to bring consequences that include such mercy as this. He says this was going to keep happening, but here's the other thing that's incredible about what he says here in verse 15. The solution to this issue that is coming comes from her offspring. Where did Adam and Eve put their clothes initially? They made for themselves loincloths. I'm so ashamed and I'm putting on clothes and I'm covering and I'm hiding. God's like, yeah, from, from that region is coming the solution to this whole thing. The first thing you wanted to cover is the, is the thing that is going to continue to be used for good and for honor and for glory. The seed of the woman is the one that's going to bruise the head of the serpent. So many other possible solutions here. I'm going to send an angel and he's going to bruise the head of the serpent. I'm going to come down myself in different form and I'm going to bruise the head of the serpent. No, God says he's going to use what feels the most broken in that moment. He's going to use what they want to hide in that moment. They're still sitting there with loincloths on. He's like, I'm going to use your seed, Eve. I'm going to use your offspring, Adam and Eve, to bring a solution to this mess that just started. This dirtiness you feel, this shame you feel, is going to be met by the guilt you just affirmed and by a solution far greater that's coming from you. Adam, Eve, you feel like you're no good and you're gone from the plan. No, actually, you're still a vital part of the plan. And you're a vital part of the the adjusted plan to bring a restoration of this bliss. It's a very different kind of consequence, a very different redemptive sort, merciful sort. Because from the beginning, immediately, God is taking Adam and Eve and saying, yep, you screwed up, good job affirming that. Now, here's some consequences, but through you is coming the solution I'm going to bring. You're still here. You're still part of this. You're not cast off. You're not on the bench forever. You're not off the team. I still want you to be part of what I'm doing on this earth. Do you see? This is ridiculous. <laughs> this, is not how, this is not how we typically respond. We say, punishment, go sit in the corner and be out of here. Come back to me when you're, when you're sorry. God's like, yeah, this is going to hurt because there's going to be pain in childbearing now and the earth's going to be cursed and it's going to be hard and you're going to, like, there is difficulty coming and you're going to go back to dust. But you're part of this. You're still part of the good that's going to happen. You're still part of the solution. You're still part of the hope because I'm still working through you despite your guilt, despite your wrongdoing. Your guilt ends. Your shame is gone. Because I've called you out into honesty. I've called you out into seeing what's really there. Okay, so now what? Now God's come. He's brought consequences. What are humans going to do now? Kids, what do you do after your parents come in the room and you've been fighting and they correct you and they give some consequences and they go away? What's the next part of the conversation? What? Okay, I don't want that to happen again. That's one thing. But you know the other thing that I'm thinking of that I observe happening and that I definitely did many times? 
parents leave. If you hadn't done that, we wouldn't be in trouble right now. We start a new fight about the fact that we just got in trouble, right? <laughs> this is still your fault, you jerk. <laughs> so now we got Adam and Eve, and God's, God stepped out of the room, so to speak, in terms of his contribution. He, he's still there. But like, he's given the consequences. Here's what's going to happen. Adam, your work's going to be hard. Thanks, Eve. Eve, your labor's going to be really hard. Adam, you jerk, why don't you speak up? Right? That's, that's the next thing, right? We expect them, if we're really entering into this with what we do, that's what's next. The interesting thing right now is she's not actually called Eve. She's called woman. We don't know yet a name for a woman except for a woman. She's called Isha because she came out of Ish in the Hebrew. So Isha came from Ish, made from the rib of man. She has no name. Adam has named all the animals as part of his thing. She didn't have a name yet. All right, here we go. I'm going to name you Jerkface because you messed things up for me. <laughs> right? Okay, what's he going to name her? What's going to go on? The first response Adam gives, the first thing we see in response to God's judgment, in response to what God says, as we proceed into scene four, which I'm calling faith and restoration, Verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve. Because Eve meant she was a big jerk face. No, because she was the mother of all living. They haven't had any kids yet. How does he know she's the mother of all living? Well, God just said, from your seed is coming the one who's going to crush the serpent. Adam's banking on what God just said to them in verse 15. And he's giving his wife this name of honor. Life. I call you life. Isha, who didn't have a name yet, you are now called life. You're called Eve. <laughs> my response to our brokenness, my response to the shame we felt, this dirtiness, and then God called us out with an affirmation and, and I feel better. I've said what I did wrong. I've declared it to be true and he has given us a consequence and yet given us standing again as well. And my response to you is not to bicker and fight and call you jerk face, it's to call you life. It's to affirm what God just said. From your seed is coming the serpent. From you is coming the life of humanity. You're the mother of all living, your life. Adam's response of faith is huge here. Eve's name is huge. And one of the things that is commonly done in, in the Old Testament in telling narrative is names commonly cap off a story. Noah's name means rest in a few chapters. And Noah's name enters in as somewhat of a commentary on what's going to happen through Noah. Moses' name comes up at the end of the story about Moses. And Moses' name is basically deliverer. Moses' son's name is used to cap off the next story. Names come in often on a commentary on what's going on. Here we are near the end of this tale, and we get the name Eve as a response to what we've just seen. Life, life is coming. So many other things could have been said here. Death, doom, destruction, we're so bad. No, God freed them from shame. He told them they're still part of this plan. And Adam says, your life then. Like this is your name is life because that's what Eve means. So when we say Eve, we're using an English transliteration of the Hebrew word, but a key part of the meaning of Eve is life. Can you imagine doing that? You and your sibling, or you and your spouse, or you and your friend, you screw up, and after you deal with some consequences, you turn to them and give them a name of honor and hope in the midst of those consequences. And that's not even the end, because it gets better. <laughs> Adam's like, I'm responding in faith, your life. And God's like, I'm doing you one better, bro. Verse 21. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. If you're going to feel like, you're, like your nakedness is a sense of vulnerability, and if you're going to wear some clothes, you're not going to wear little loincloths. You're going to wear honorable clothes. Because here's the thing, if you are in ancient Israel listening 
to this story when it was originally delivered, written by Moses. You're sitting around waiting to go into the promised land. You are part of the second generation of Israelites, the ones whose parents all sinned and perished in the wilderness. What is your identity right now about to enter the promised land? You're the kids of the failures. You're the kids of those who couldn't recognize God's grace coming out of Egypt and totally failed and died. Yeah, my, my dad died in the desert three weeks ago. What about you? Oh, yeah, three months ago. Uh, yeah, you. Yeah, my mom was the second one. She died a few weeks ago. You all have tales of your parents dying, the entire generation, except for Joshua and Caleb, the two who stood for let's, let's follow the Lord. All these others, they were close to the promised land. And they're like, we can't go. We don't trust God. And he's like, oh, okay, you're going to circle around and you're all going to die now because you won't display faith. So sitting there on the cusp of the promised land, we are the children of failures. Supposedly still going into this promised land. And this phrase, he clothed them with tunics, which is not the way it's translated directly here, but he made garments of skin. In some of the English translations, you'll see it translated as tunics, robes. Clothed them with tunics. That phrase is used in two other places in the Old Testament. Same Hebrew words. Those two other places are three, I guess, but two other references, basically. Exodus 29, verse 5 and 8. So Exodus 29, 5. Then you shall take the garments and put on Aaron, the coat and the robe of the band and the ephod. Oh, sorry, the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with a skillfully woven band of the ephod. What's he talking about? Aaron, the high priest. You shall take the clothes of the high priest and clothe Aaron with them. Clothe with the tunic. Same phrase. Again in verse 8, same reference. Gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them. Oh, sorry, that's, that's verse 9. Uh, verse 8, you shall bring his sons and put coats on them. Bring them, put coats on them. Same phrase. Comes up again in Exodus 40. Then in Leviticus 8, verse 7, verse 13, chapter 16, verse 4, they're actually doing that. So it's a reference to the same thing. They took Aaron and they put the tunic on him. They took his sons and put the tunic on him. So Israelites sitting around, they know what it means to put a tunic on someone. And now you do too. So now we read this in Genesis. The Lord made for Adam and Eve garments of skins, tunics, and he clothed them. He clothed them with tunics. This is no mere like, oh, here, this will work better for you. God's saying, you're not just going to wear a little long clothes. If you're going to wear clothes, you're going to wear clothes of honor. Clothes that actually affirm the position I gave you in the first place as those who are the vice regents over creation, the high priests of creation that are expanding the garden and bringing the blessing to the world. And yeah, there's still... There are still consequences. But you're still part of what I'm doing. You're still, you're, you sinned. We talked about that. There are consequences. Now go forth in strength again. You can move on. You don't have to wallow in shame and misery, Adam and Eve. Here's some tunics. Tunic is also not, not clothed with tunic, not the exact same phrase, but that tunic word is the same thing of Joseph's coat of many colors that we talk about this tunic of glory that Jacob gave to Joseph and made all his brothers jealous? It wasn't because it was like some lame piece of clothes. It wasn't because it was some basic thing. God's giving them amazing, honorable clothes with which to go out to the mission that he's still giving them. He's restoring them in the midst of their, their sin and their response. They rebelled. Restoring them their calling. It, it reminds me of a, a story I heard years ago um, and as far as I know, this is real, and I wish I remembered from who. It was like I was sitting around, I think at a Bible study or something, and a couple other guys talking, and someone they knew, if I recall correctly, this guy's wife had an affair, slept around on him, maybe with one specific guy or whatever. And she came back, and she's broken and weeping and repentant, and the guy's like, you know, what am I going to do? And what he did was he went in, he got her wedding dress and brought it out to her and asked her to put it on. He said, I meant that covenant. I meant what I said. Let's fix this. 
Do you see that here? (laughs) They rebelled. They broke the one command. They're in bliss. They're in the perfect paradise. Oh, God, we screwed up. And this isn't all that severe. What's going to happen in chapter 4? Cain's going to kill Abel. Like, you ate some fruit. He murdered a guy. Right? Like, we, we feel this tension of, like, the gravity of sin at times, where some things feel small, some things don't. Adam and Eve, you would say, in the one sense, all they did was eat an apple. But it wasn't an apple. All they did was eat the fruit. And yet it was so big. It brought in all the consequences of sin and they're feeling like idiots and feeling ashamed and I'm not good enough and God says, your calling remains. I'm calling you back to this. Don't step away. I still want you in this and I am making the way to restore you and there's one coming who's going to crush this serpent. To be clothed in honor after complete failure and rebellion. Uh, brief side note, oftentimes in verse 21, we talk about sacrificing an animal and that sort of thing. It's possible, but it's also not talked about in this text. It's not the point of this text, so I'm not making a point of it. This also says that God made the garments, which is the same verb that's used for God making all of creation. It's very possible that he didn't even kill an animal, just made the garments for them, so we don't really know. But the point remains in terms of what the text is getting at, that he made these tunics of glory for them. So whether that was from killing an animal or not, tunics of glory. Whether this was the first instance of sacrifice or whether this is just a reference of making beautiful clothes, they're given beautiful clothes. The consequences remain. Verse 22 to 24 starts again, however, with mercy. Verse 22, God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Dot, dot, dot. God's saying he, man has screwed up and now he's dealing with sin and shame and brokenness and there's not going to be beautiful bliss for man's life until this is all permanently fixed. So now what I'm going to do is make sure that he doesn't live forever in that status. Do you see that? This is actually grace. This is actually mercy. Like, yeah, I'm going to stop you now from reaching out and taking a bite of the tree of life and giving yourself eternally sin-cursed life. That would be fun, wouldn't it now? <laughs> we, I'm sure you can all share the sentiment that at times you're like, I'm kind of ready for this life to be over so I can stop dealing with this sin and cursed stuff. Can you imagine if that was just forever existence because we ate of the tree of life? God's like, no, 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 we're going to have a limited time period of this. So you're getting out of the garden. You're not going to be by the tree of life. In addition, someone else is going to guard this garden. It's not going to be part of this. It's not going to be accessible anymore. So God sent them out of the garden. And this is tragic, right? There was this beautiful, blissful garden they were called to, and they were going to expand it. And now that's set aside. They're not in a place anymore where that's possible in the same way. They are no longer sinless, perfect, etc. God has kicked them out. Adam's purpose was to guard and to keep the garden and to expand it and whatever, and now instead we have an angel taking his place. Adam was to guard it. He didn't fully. At a key moment, he screwed up. He didn't say anything. At a key moment, Eve screwed up and she ate the fruit, shared it with Adam, and he did too, right? They did screw up. There are consequences. They're no longer in the garden, and an angel has taken the place to guard the garden. But the point is he's guarding the way to the tree of life. No one will be locked eternally in a sinful cursed world state as God makes the way to restore it all. So what happens? Why is this connected to Christmas? Because Jesus' birth fulfills God's merciful, shame-killing judgment. Look at the the seed of the woman. This, This whole thing defines not only the structure of Genesis, which I'll say in a, talk about in a second, but the, the entirety of existence. These same themes carry through, right? This conflict between the serpent, the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent, the seed of the woman, their offspring, going at it over the years. In Genesis, there's a, a Hebrew word, toledot, and it actually defines the outline of Genesis. Toledot means, and this is what became of, essentially. It's kind of like a, a phrase word. So here's what became of this. Here's what became of that. And you see it over and over in Genesis, it's a lot of times tied to the brief genealogies. 
here's what became of whatever. Uh, chapter 5, verse 1, for example, this is the book of the generations of Adam. It says, Toledo Adam. Here is what became of Adam, that came from Adam. And that happens over and over as you trace through. And it comes at key junctures in the book of Genesis where you're following. Genesis follows the seed of the woman. So Adam and then his children and then you get Noah and Noah's children and it traces through the child of promise, essentially. Like the others are kind of set aside with these brief genealogies as we continue through. You get to Abraham and Abraham continues. And then Isaac, you continue with Isaac. You have Jacob and Esau. Well, a brief little mention of Esau, I think it's chapter 25, his, his generations, but really we're continuing with Jacob. All the way through the book of Genesis, the outline of that structure is following this tension, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, and saying here's what became this, this one and this one and this one as we're continuing to trace the seed of the woman. But these things, the fall, the curse, pain under sin and death, and Jesus coming to take them all on. <laughs> And it's almost reversed of what happens in this story when Jesus comes because Adam and Eve threw themselves into a place where they felt shame and God brought the awareness and the affirmation of their guilt to free them from the shame and to loose them forward to serve again. Jesus came from a place of glory and honor into a place where he was going to be given shame by the community around him. As a child born out of wedlock, as they saw it, as a child born into poverty, as a child born and placed in a manger in a feeding trough, what more unclean place could you be put when you're first born? Jesus came into shame to kill our guilt forever. <laughs> so God, God used their affirmation of guilt to clear their shame feelings and to, to free them to be able to say, yes, I screwed up and I can move forward in faith. And Adam calls Eve, Eve. And Jesus comes into shameful type circumstances to provide the final payment for guilt. It's kind of cool reversal, but he makes that possible. And all throughout history, the serpent tries to fight and the serpent tries to kill the seed of the woman and you have Herod trying to kill the babies and you have Romans 16, 20, Paul says, God will surely crush the serpent under your feet. Revelation 12, which we'll look at later this month, but it talks about the great serpent and the battle over the course of time. Revelation 20, verse two, the great serpent called Satan is cast away forever. Right, these, that serpent does not leave until the end of the Bible when he is defeated for good. This conflict goes throughout the ages, but God is always the hero of it. There's never a time when the serpent is actually standing a chance. There's never a time when the serpent is actually gaining an upper hand. We watch... Uh, various action films these days, right? Like whether it's superhero stuff or super spy or whatever. And in most of those films along the way, the person who's the hero in the battle at the moment is getting beaten for a bit by the person they're going one-on-one -on -one against or one-on-six or whatever. There's some struggle. They're getting beaten down. Then they emerge victorious eventually. That's not the picture of the Bible. <laughs> the picture of the Bible is like God sitting there all powerful and then Satan's coming along with a little squirt gun over and over again. Gotcha! Great. Like, it does nothing because God is in control of the whole thing. But we see man's failure. We see that sin is real and has real consequences. And that's okay to talk about and to deal with. It's actually better to deal with it. As God shows us in this text, come out, tell me what happened. Stop wallowing in your shame and misery. Stop pretending that you're a lesser person because you screwed up like literally everyone else does now. God's mercy-filled intervention and judgment. That's not, that's not a one-time deal in Genesis. In Habakkuk 3.2, Habakkuk calls on God in judgment, remember mercy. Like he's calling on his character in that regard. Uh, Micah 7, 7 through 9, I love, is a section that Micah basically says, I'm going to wait for God's salvation, and I know I've done wrong, and he's going to bring his punishment, but I'm going to wait on him to restore me, because that's what he does. I'm counting on that. All throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament, we see this pattern where God brings judgment with mercy, because he's redeeming and restoring. It's redemptive, the way that he approaches our shame and our sin. Having faith in God's promise, having this restoration from shame to honor, man's continued place of service even after failure. As far as Psalm 8, Psalm 8 talks about what is man that you have 
put him in this place. You've crowned him with glory. You've given him a place of honor to take care of the world, essentially, paraphrasing slightly. But like in several verses, he says that. And then in Hebrews 2, it references that and says, Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, direct reference to a phrase from Psalm 8, we see him and him crowning glory and, and going up to his place. Jesus as the one who fulfills the goal of all humanity. So we're called to the faith of Adam to be able to say in the midst of our own failure, in the midst of repenting of our failure, there is life here because God is still good because God is the one making way. We're called to this faith and we're also taught how to be redemptive. I think this is huge for us as we live our lives, as we look to what it really means at Christmas to say there is hope. The reason there's hope is because we're sinners. That's the reality, and we don't have to pretend like we're not sinners, and we don't have to come here or anywhere and put on a plastic face as if we aren't. We don't have to shove our sin under the rug or never talk about it because what are they going to think about me or whatever else. Indeed, when we do that, we make it worse. When we do that, we're trying to put a little loincloth on to guard ourselves from shame. That shame will never be defeated. If you indulge that shame, it's going to continue and continue and continue because shame loves to be present. And shame will always beat you down. It's the greatest bully. Satan is the greatest bully. He uses shame over and over again. Shame in general, when you let your brain just think on it, all you're going to do is beat yourself down. There is never a time when you're going to say, I'm such an idiot, enough that you no longer feel like an idiot. We see this when people are bullied, even like by their parents at times, when they're young and their, their dad or mom is telling them, you'll never be enough, you'll never be enough, you'll never be enough. They come out with huge identity issues and insecurity issues. They never just say, okay, they eventually take that on as an identity. You think you're going to do different when you tell yourself you're an idiot? When you listen to the voice of shame, when you take that as your response to your guilt, you're condemning yourself to shame over and over and over again. You're not going to beat it by saying you're dumb. What you're going to beat it by is an honest look at your sin, a confession of it, and then moving forward in faith because Jesus paid for it. Because this little baby is the skull crusher. Little baby beats snakes, or a snake, the big serpent. I really thought of making the title of this something like The Infant Skull Crusher. Would have been really fun to see what Jacob threw on as an image for that one. <laughs> but that's what we're looking at when we look at the, the Christmas manger. This is the infant skull crusher. Like he comes and he, he goes, here, serpent. Okay, you're dead. Like that's what Jesus does. And there's no battle <laughs> because he just kills the snake. But when we approach each other in our sin, in our brokenness, when we have our own relationships, husband and wife, brother and sister, sister and sister, whatever, siblings, friends, coworkers, can we be redemptive like God? Can we call our relationships into that kind of honesty and respond like God does? Sure, sometimes the gravity of our sin might be like, oh man, I'm sorry to hear that. I wasn't expecting that. Sometimes we're, not, we're, we're thinking they're going to say, oh yeah, I'm struggling with greed or jealousy. And instead they're, you know, struggling with something that we consider much, much harder. They stole money, they're money laundering at work, you know, or whatever. Like, we deal with severe sins sometimes. We get tricked still by the serpent many times. But can we respond like God does with redemptive mercy? Can we respond to our kids like God does with redemptive mercy? Yes, there are consequences. Yes, you are guilty. But your guilt can be washed away by Jesus and you can move forward in strength that he provides. So at Christmas, we see that fulfillment. We see Jesus, the one who made good on this, the one who God promised all the way back in Genesis 3, 15, the seed of the woman, the final greatest seed of the woman. As Paul will reference in Galatians, as others will say, like Jesus is the seed. God wasn't kidding when he said in Genesis, here's your consequences, fill with mercy. When he said, you're still part of this and your offspring is still part of this, he meant it and Jesus came and we have hope and we can see that and we can rejoice and hopefully that reality can mean the shame is gone. That we can turn away from shame and we can turn toward guilt and we can turn toward the honesty that says, hey, can I be vulnerable? This happened. Okay, how are we moving forward with that? Not, oh, you moron, what did you do? But no, taking on the spirit of God toward our sin. Far too often as a church, we're tempted, as a broader American church, we're tempted to take on our culture's response towards sin 
instead of God's response to our sin. We're tempted to treat sin as if it's a mar in your character, a black mark forever. You are now defined by it. Years later, we'll still talk of you as the one who does that sort of thing. No, no, no. God says, all right, confess it. Let's deal with it. And now move on in your calling. You're still called to be part of the world. You're still called to serve God. So embrace guilt to kill shame and then move forward in hope because Jesus paid for your guilt. And let's be a church culture that embodies that, that we can talk about our difficulties and our sin and we can love one another enough to say, all right, I'm sorry to hear that. Thank you for telling me. Let's pray together. Let's see what steps we can take to kill it. And let's rejoice in the hope this Christmas season that Jesus kills shame. God, thank you. Thank you that from the very beginning, your approach to sin was to bring mercy-filled judgment, that your approach to our shame was to call us out of it rather than leave us trying to self-punish. When Adam and Eve were stuck, almost trying to flagellate themselves in response to their sin, that if they could only feel their shame enough or cover it enough or something, you came and showed them that was, that was pointless. Their shame was not going to go away just by doing something minimal. They needed to actually confess their guilt and come to you. I pray you would help us to do the same that we would be those who run to you, that we would be those who have faith in you even in the midst of and after our failures. That we'd be able to say, I know my God is greater. I know that Jesus has paid for it. I know that the Spirit can restore me. That we would not run from consequence or pretend like consequence is unnatural. We, we still fail at times, but that we would run to you for restoration. That we'd be those that know that redeeming grace and share it with others. We'd be those who rejoice to be able to come along some, alongside someone who has screwed up or is in a place of shame or, or pain and to be able to help restore them. Thank you, Jesus, that you came into a place that, that the culture thought was shameful in order to kill our guilt forever, to provide the covering forever that would remove our guilt too and pay for our guilt. And we can have eternal life and hope in you as Justin said earlier, the hope of Christmas season that is found in you. We pray that you would help us to rejoice in that all season long, that we would be those who, who embody your grace and your goodness to the world. In Jesus' name, amen.